thank you for inviting me to speak on uh, something with which we all relate to that is the what is the right wing narrative in this country. Now I assume that lots of us almost all of us identify themselves either conservative or the right wing people and why do we do so? What exactly it is, is it that when we call ourselves conservative what do we actually mean? We mean four things in my understanding. First that we based our opinions on the basis of facts and figures. We are not liberals to live in fantasy world. We are not the left wing to believe in propaganda. As a conservative, as the right wing, we believe we base our opinion on the facts and figures. Number two is that we see the world as it is. We do not see the world as we want, to see, want it to be. And this is what which differentiate ourselves from the liberals or from the other side, be it the left side or any other side. We see the word exactly, we try to see word exactly how it is. Now that's a very difficult thing to do because all of us come with our own pre-notions of thing, our own understanding, our own social conditioning. So there's, this is just next to impossible to see the word as it is, but we try our best to do so. Third thing is that we believe that while liberty and freedom is important, is absolutely necessity, but that's not the only game in the town. Nowadays, we see a lots of glamour among the people when they say freedom of expression, they say liberty, this is my right, I will do as I want to do, I want Azadi, our infamous Azadi brigade from JNU. Their argument is that the civilizations have grown only because of absolute liberty or absolute freedom of expression. Well, as the conservatives, we disagree with that. We say that while it is important, that is not the only game in town. There are other factors as well. There has to be an order in the society as well. Without order, there is no liberty. Without a state, without a strong state which can guarantee your freedom and guarantee your liberty and can guarantee your freedom of expression, all these things will not exist. You can talk about them, you can talk about various rights, that this is my right, that is my right, but right is a right only when it is written down and guaranteed by your state. Otherwise, there is no one to enforce your rights. So we also believe in a state, in an effective state, in a strong state. Number four in India, we believe that Indian civilization and culture is something worth defending and it has the right to defend itself, it has the right to flourish and it has the right to propagate itself as well. This is quite unlike many of the people on the liberal side or even on the left side believe in. For them, India is just an oppressive, outdated entity which has no business to be, to be there in the modern world. Now what I am going to do in this talk is to basically talk about the origin, uh, a kind of uh, a, say when did the right wing thought originated in this country and I am talking about the right wing thought in a modern political sense, I am not talking about you know ancient days or whatever it is. And second thing I am going to say that how it got distorted and it is distorted in India, it is very difficult to pick up who speaks for the right wing or what exactly is the right wing thought in this country? Is it some Gauraksha Dal people who speaks for it or is some Tao living in Kapanchayat in a village he speaks for right wing or it is the urban class which speaks for the right wing? Is it Narendra Modi or BJP or it is the VSP and Pravin Togarya? It's very difficult, it has become very difficult to define what right wing is. Now see uh, the origin of right wing thought I take to be starting from the Savarkar. There were people before that, 
there were lots of people, Arvindo was there, Bankim Chan Chatterjee was there, many people were there. But it is the Savarkar who is a definitive figure. And why Savarkar is a definitive figure is because when he was jailed for his anti-imperialist activities against the British Empire, and he was jailed, we all know, at the Andaman in Nicobar, Kalapani. He was not jailed like Gandhi or Nehru in some palace or some as a VIP prisoner. He was really jailed, he was really given a very harsh jail term. So he had this time to reflect upon why is India ruled by foreigners again and again? Why is it so that India is being invaded again and again and despite the stories of resistance, despite how much you celebrate the stories like Chittor and Padmavati, the end result is that we are defeated and we are ruled by the foreign power. Maybe it were the Turks or Mongols, now it is the British. So he was, he actually reflected upon this problem and he also reflected upon one more problem. Is that why in India there is no coherent response to foreign invasions? Why in India there is no systematic response to imperialism? Everyone says one thing or the another. So Maharana Pratap might be fighting his battle. Marathas might be doing something. But there is no systematic thought. There is no coherent, coordinated response to the imperialism. This is very unlike the Chinese or other places. And he traced this thing back to something which is a reality of India is that we are a disunited people. We are disunited on the basis of language, culture and most importantly caste. You go to any village, any countryside in any village or even in the cities, you will see different castes competing with each other, fighting with each other and they would give a damn about the national interest. Look at the Gujarat elections recently. Look at the Gujarat elections recently. The whole narrative was of Vikas and nationalism was undone by something as simple as caste narrative. So he traced this problem back to the disunity among the people and he also traced something. He says that India is not a nation. You might be saying that Hamara Rashtra ki paribhasha alag hai and we are an ancient nation or culture, whatever it is. But he says India is not a nation in any true modern political sense. Now remember he was talking 100 years back or something. So he says India has to become a nation because nation as we understand, you know, is a modern political construct. There were no nations in the world 200 years back. Neither Italy was a nation, nor Britain was a nation, nor Germany was a nation. There is a process, there is a modern process in the modern history in which you have the rise of the nations and the nation states. Any student of social science would know that and would agree to that. Now, Savarkar, and problem in India was that, that India entered the modern world under the colonial rule. You did not enter the modern world like European countries under a self-governance or self-rule. You entered the modern world when you were being ruled by the, a foreign power a westerner foreign foreign power so it was a it was a difficult task you know india was not a nation and british were also their the entire charge against india was that you are not a nation and that is why here we are to rule you when you say that the earlier uh, nationalists say that we india is a nation so they used to ask which nations are you are you a punjabi are you a tamil or you are a bengali what exactly are you and we could not really provide a meaningful answer now here savarkar becomes important because savarkar said he conceptualized something which is very radical break from the indian indian thought he said india has to become a nation and he said india has to become a modern industrial power this is something people often forget the savarkar argued for a modern industrial power 
and he understood which lots of people even today do not understand is that becoming a modern industrial power and a modern nation are two sides of the same coin. This process have always gone together in the history. You cannot have a village based agrarian order and you can become a modern nation. That's just impossible. That has never happened anywhere. And that, that has not happened in India even today. And that will not happen if, if remain continue like this. So we understand that for India to be able to resist the foreign powers, the imperialism, India has to become a modern industrial nation with the powerful means of waging war. And for that to happen, he understood, he, he understood that India has to become a nation, a community of the people which relate to each other. And in his understanding, the basis of that nation was Hindutva. He wrote this book, Hindutva, in which he says, he tries to define a modern nation, which he calls a Hindu Rashtra or Hindu nation. Now, interestingly, Savarkar defined Hindu Rashtra in more or less in a geographical term. We all know that. He said, okay, this is a, this is a dominant, uh, this is a predominantly a Hindu country. But Savarkar, we know he was an atheist in his personal life and his concept of uh, Hindutva or Hindu nation was more of a geographical term rooted in Indian culture and civilization and defending the people and their practices. But there was some, something other happening as well. You know, when the British came, they also did something. They started the systematic study of India. They started a systematic study of India, which we all understand as Indology and other things. And the British also started characterizing India from their own perspective, from their own, you know, uh, prisms and other things. And they said that India is a backward country. India is a spiritual country. India is a caste-ridden country. Basically, India is some kind of or orientalist, uh, you know, a place and some kind of exotic place where people are not into real work and other things. They are more into thinking about Atma and Paramatma. And India is stuck in time. It's a stagnant society which has continued. It was kind of romanticism as well on the part of the British. It was not all ill-intentioned. This is how they saw India coming from an industrial state. What happened that once they started defining it and because they were the ruling power, so when the ruling power defines something, that becomes the template. This is the power of the state and the power of the ruling class. So two responses arose in retaliation or in reaction. First response was that, yes, India is a backward country. India is a caste-ridden country. There's nothing good in India. There's only child marriages and sati. And Britishers are right and we have to undo this India and create a new India. We have to completely restructure India and create a kind of a modern India. This thought has also continued in India and I would say that lots of people who identify themselves as left and liberals, they are inheritors of this response. You responded to British when British characterized you saying that you are a backward stagnant society, you are a caste-ridden society, there is nothing good about you, you are some kind of otherworldly people, you only think about Atma, Paramatma and religion, you are not interested in the real world. So these people say, yes, Britishers are right and we have to undo this thing and we have to create a modern, more just society. And lots of liberals and left actually flow from this strand of thought. Now I'm speaking in a very generalized manner because it is not possible to go into nuances of everything. There was another response and that response says that, yes, Britishers are right. India is an agrarian society. India is a society which is spiritual, unlike the West, which is materialistic. Yes, the caste is a reality. This is our structure. But what's wrong about it? 
So this side went and said that yes, we are like that. We are exactly like how you are describing us, but this is how we are and this is better, this is good and we are superior than the West. Now Gandhi exemplifies this approach. Now you lot of people will say is Gandhi a right wing, but left considers Gandhi to be a very right wing person and Gandhi was seen as a right or on the side of the conservative thought in his time. So Gandhi wrote this book called Hind Swaraj in which he glorifies the village order and the agrarian order and say machines are bad, industrialization is bad and, and he was a great defender of the caste system, we all know that. His only thing was that there should not be any discrimination but people should remain where they are. This was the Gandhi's position and this was in the root of the Gandhi Ambedkar debate which continued for throughout that century. century. So uh, this, this approach basically said, yes, we are like that, the British are saying, and we will continue to be like this, and there is nothing wrong in that. Lots of people who identify themselves as right-wing today, there is a strong section which is an inheritor of this thought, which is an inheritor of this thought. They are not the inheritors of the Savarkarite thought, they are not the inheritors of the right-wing thought per se, as you say Hindutva and other thought, they are inheritors of the orthodoxy that we are like this, we are a spiritual person, we are agrarian people, we our Bharat Gaon mein rehta hai and this is our culture, this is our Sanskriti and we will continue like this. The problem is that in no one, neither, uh, both the sides did not question the British characterization of India as a backward stagnant society. None of them had the, I will say the uh, initiative to ask the Britishers, is India a stagnant society for thousands of years? Well, India, as we know, was one of the richest place. We all know that. Even until 1750, it accounted for around 25% of world GDP, if I'm not wrong. The India is a geographical entity. Now, you cannot have an economy, you cannot have a place which is economically so dynamic, which is one of the richest place in the country, and which was also, which also has a very good track record of technological innovations in ancient time, and society will be stagnant. That is just impossible, that is a contradiction. Once you have economic dynamism, you have technological growth, you have the rise of cities and urban centers, the society can anything be but stagnant. No one questions the Britishers this thing, that how, how, how are you characterizing India as frozen in time and eternal India and all those things. And if you see India, Indian history, India has largely been an urban based society be it Harappan period, be, be it the Mauryan period, be it the Gupta period, be even the Mughal period, India was highly urbanized from these, by the standards of those times. You cannot compare it to today, but by the standards of those times, India was a highly urbanized, sophisticated society. And lots of things you take pride in, in Indian civilization, actually comes from the cities and urban centers. It does not come from the villages. Lots of these discoveries and economic dynamism, these thinkers you talk about, barring the religious thinkers, but most of them anyways live in cities or nearby cities, actually comes from the urban center. So this characterization of India as a village economy was patently wrong. It was a highly urban society by time. We, we started, we forget that when British came to India, when they started ruling India, the plunder and destruction of British was such, and you can refer to any research on that. India went, to a phase, went through a phase of de-urbanization in the initial period of British rule. So lots of people who moved 
because the handicrafts were destroyed, the manufacturing was destroyed, the economy was destroyed. We forget how violent the British rule was. We forget how violently they captured India. Somehow we don't talk about it. I don't know why. We only talk about Turks and the Mughals and other people. But European powers were equally violent in their conquest of India. And economy was destroyed, countryside were devastated, lots of people actually fled from the cities to the countryside. So India went to a phase of de-urbanization. And this is the phase which we are looking at in the mid 19th century in which these responses are originating. So this, this, was a great, this was a great flaw done by the Indians. And lots of people who identify themselves as right wing, as I said, they are inheritor of this trend of thought. So if you go today, if you talk, if you take a canvas of the right wing, there, there is always glorification. Talk to any person who identify himself as a right wing, barring few, they glorify village life and agrarian utopia, asli bharat gaon mein rehta hai. It is spoken as a matter of pride. I have seen ministers, I have seen ministers handling heavy industry, speaking, dismissing industrialization and urbanization and saying asli bharat to gaon mein rehta hai. But sir, if asli bharat gaon mein rehta hai, that's an that's a proof of the failure of independent India to urbanize. That's not something to be pride, pr proud of. Now, this is this is big flaw in the right-wing thought, which I'm coming to, is that we have forgotten the where did you originate it? The, the Savarkarite thought, which I see as a systematic political thought in the right wing, aimed not at a village utopia. It was not arguing for an agrarian utopia. It was arguing for a modern industrial nation. Because he understood that only in a modern industrial setup can you have the emergence of a nation. Why? These are two processes of the same side. See, once you have an agrarian order, and in India that order is driven by caste differences and other social stratifications, you can never become a nation. And this is what Ambedkar also said, that what exactly is a nation? Now, there are many definitions, but the best definition is that nation is a community in which people relate to each other. They can feel each other's pain and happiness. This is as simple as you get it. Now, once you have a society divided on the basis of caste and other social uh, distinctions, you cannot have a nation. It's only when you have the rise of industrialization and the rise of the urbanization that people start moving away from the agricultural sector to the modern sector because the modern sector needs what you, what you say a free labor. They do not operate a modernization or urbanization cannot happen in a society which is bounded by caste. The labor has to be free. The people have to be free to choose their professions. The pe there should be labor mobility in the economy. And only then you will have the urbanization and industrialization. It's only when they come to the urban center and the uh, industrial center that, and they start living together, irrespective of their caste and background and reason or language, is that you have the emergence of a new class of people which share the similar experience and similar concerns. And it is on that basis a nation grows. It happened everywhere. Wherever you talk about the modern nation, the modern nations, there's some element of homogenization. There's some element of homogenization that, see, when, when the France became, uh, now it's a very complex thing because the question will be that did the nation came first, uh, first or the state come first? It's a very tricky question to answer because in France, the state created the nation, French nation. Less than half the people spoke the French language when the French Revolution happened. 
It was the French state which forcibly destroyed all other languages and said, no, you have to speak French and you have to become French. Same thing happened in Italy. When the Italian unification took place, I think less than one third of people spoke Italian. It's after the state was created that they created the Italian nation. So it's not a one side formula. There are many ways to become nation. But under the colonial modernity, the, the path open to India was very simple. You have to industrialize, you have to urbanize. And once you start doing that, there will, be, there will emerge a new class of people which will share similar concerns and similar experiences. And that will give rise to a nation and exactly that happened. Indian nationalism emerged in the urban center within the educated class. It did not emerge in the countryside. If you read the India's uh, uh, political history of freedom struggle, now it, you know, nowadays it is very fashionable to denounce the English speaking people, calling them Mekaliputra. The English speaking people are somehow impure. They, are, they don't relate to the country. But they forget that all the people who laid the foundation of internationalism and even the right wing thought, they were all English educated people. And they were all urban class people. They were not coming from the village side. right? We often forget that. So one thing when we are talking about the right wing and I said it's a recalibrating the right wing. First thing we have to be very clear about what we want to do. We cannot go on glorifying a village setup, a village utopia. And which is not a really good thing in India. If you go, no one will go and live in the villages among us. We all know it's not a very good place to live in. Or we want to argue for a modern industrial nation. Now, you see, what is the difference between Bihar and Gujarat? Recently concluded elections. Gujarat is highly urbanized as compared to Bihar. It's only in Gujarat that despite all the problems, despite all the all things going against you, the BJP, which is a right-wing party, was still able to hold its ground. And it was able to hold its ground mainly in the urban centers. BJP lost very badly in, on the, in the village seats. We have seen that. That should be the reason enough for you to reorient your discourse and say we are for urbanization and industrialization because only that can overcome these problems of caste distinctions and other kinds of social problems and it is only in the urban center that we can create a new India which Prime Minister Modi talks about. The second point is that there is a problem again in the right wing discourse coming I am completing this point you know how the nation was created. There is a problem again in the right wing discourse if you see that you just do not discuss something which is extremely important that is caste. The discussion on caste only revolves in the right wing circle about what does caste meant in the Vedic period? Or what was the true caste system? I am sorry to say there is no such thing as the true caste system. Caste system is just a social system which grew we even don't know when. There are some studies we say it is a pre-Vedic system. It was present even the, among the Harappans and it continued in the Vedic period and it got changed and transformed. But that's, that's natural, you know, any social system will change and get transformed. So caste was transformed when the rise of feudalism happened in India. The caste underwent a change when the when they were uh, Mughals and the Turks came to India. The caste underwent change when the Britishers came to India because the underlying reality of the society underwent a change and the caste is undergoing a change in the modern independent India. So they, I think it's a very futile thing to argue that what was the pure real caste system. I don't. I think there's no such thing. You have to deal with it as a system, as a dynamic social system like any other social system. 
Now, but there is a problem the right wing just starts saying there was a pure caste system which was a very good thing and it got distorted and you know the British created the problem or the Mughals created the problem. First of all, as a conservative you should not say that because you have to base your opinions on the reality. The caste system was not good system even when before the Mughals came to power. You have to read simple history, you have to see when Chandragupta Maurya was about to be coronated the emperor. There was a heavy resistance by the uh, Magad Brahmins saying you cannot make this guy the emperor, you cannot crown him as emperor because he's a low born person. And it was Charakya who basically you know pushed him, they know he will become the emperor. So it was always problematic system. It all depends upon from whose perspective are you looking at it. Some people will say, well, well, it was okay, there were some restrictions on even on the what you call the upper caste, there were some restrictions on the Shudras, there were some restrictions on the Avarnas and it is all okay. But this is now how it operates, you know. It depends upon whose perspective you are looking at. For the people at the lower bottom, it was never ever a good system. It was never ever a good system and that is why throughout, throughout the history you will find the resistance to this system. I, I, I don't want to name anyone, but there was one person who was appointed as the chair of some research body in this country recently and he came on TV and said, well, if caste system was so problematic, why don't we hear any protest against it in the history? Well, if you look at the history, they have, there has been always protest against the system and there has always been argument for equality of the people. Recently, I was at Goa where I spoke on this topic exactly how in the Indic thought there is a very strong, strong strand for arguing against the caste distinction and most of these thought, strands of thoughts come from the Hindu thought, you know, Hindu religious thought. So now you can't say that the British created caste problem and, you know, Ramanujacharya was arguing against this distinction thousand years back. This is, this is not done. Second thing which has come in the right wing is that any discussion, any discussion on this kind of problems and caste discrimination is discrimination is a reality. Forget caste discrimination, caste violence atrocities is a reality. Look at the statistics and you will come to know that. But there is a, there's a, another problem which has come in that any discussion on the caste is now being branded as breaking India. And the right, lots of right wing people have basically grasped upon this thing. Now I know it very clearly that there are lots of people there are people like Kancha Alaya, there are people of, there are many missionaries, there are many Marxist radicals who actually use any fault line to create a problem. But you cannot brand any discussion on the caste as breaking India forces. By doing so, you are giving away all the control over the discourse to the other side. Why is it so that when, whenever there is a problem, whenever there is an issue to be discussed about the caste, it's only the Maoists and the missionaries are there. Why is there no one from the right wing who identifies the right wing standing there? Why are these NGO types are fighting those battles? Where are you? Right? You have the Khailanji case, you have the Lakshman Purbathe case where dozens of people were massacred and no one was punished because court said no one did it. And who was fighting those cases? They were basically the people from the radical left who were standing with those people. So when you are not, you are not discussing these questions, you are not standing there with the people, obviously the people with the sinister agenda will capture that space. But this is a problem which has again come in and we have to get out of it. We have to start engaging with the caste question and this is a very, very important question. We have just seen that in Gujarat, 
forget about the Dalits and the other weaker sections, even the powerful caste like Patels, they can also create lots of damage to your country. And they have done, they have almost done using the Patels damage. In the coming days, you will see in Rajasthan, the Rajputs will be instigated, Lingayats are anyways being instigated, the Jats are always already on the street, the Marathas are already on the street. So this thing will become a very big challenge for the right wing in this country in the coming one or two years. You will see it happening. So it's time to start engaging with this issue in a realistic manner. See, no one is interested in you telling them what was the caste system in Vedic period, what was the caste system that time. No one is interested, right? They look at the reality, what is happening today. So it's a better idea, it's a good idea to discuss, to engage with what caste actually is today. And you cannot go to the people and start saying, well, this is a Marxist and the missionary distortion of history. And that is why you think caste system is bad. The people, the, the Dalits and other lower castes are against, they are out on the street protesting against this thing, not because they have read Marx or some missionary, not because they even print Kanchalaya, they are against it because they face it every day. And they find it, it is totally unfair to them and this is something which is oppressive towards them. There is no point in getting into academic discourse where a political intervention is needed. Number two. Number three point is that when we are discussing the Indian civilization and Indic thought, we have to come out of fixation on just the Vedic period. And I have seen this thing again and again every time. Whenever you talk about Indian civilization, whenever there is a talk on Hinduism, it's always, it begins and ends with the Vedic period. For with all due respect, Vedic society was a very simple society. What they did, what they did not did, how they organized their society cannot be applicable even to the uh, Republican Mahajan, Mahajanpada period, forget the modern period. So while it's a good academic discussion, it's a very good thing to discuss and you know, find out what was it and what is the meaning of those thoughts and how they have been distorted and they have been distorted by the Marxist and the people. But you cannot begin and end with the Vedic period. These are 5000 years of history. You cannot forget it. You cannot forget what happened in those 5000 years. You cannot cede control over various Hindu traditions. Like, I find it very, very, uh, you say, interesting when the Yogi Adityanath became the chief minister of UP, all my liberal friends and the leftist friends were writing articles on Nath Sampradaya and saying that well, Nath Sampradaya was not a Hindu Sampradaya, it was a different one and it was very radical in its time, it was anti-caste and it was different kind of a system. Bizarre, you know, but they, they could do so because we on the right, we, we don't write about these things. We have we look at medieval history as some kind of a black spot in India's history because we are obsessed with the people ruling at Delhi and we have forgotten the lots of things happening in the society. Medieval period is also the period of Hindu resurgence in this country. Politically you were defeated but Hinduism got changed in a very big manner. You have the entire Bhakti movement, Tantra movement, you have different sampradayas coming up. So even if you are arguing from a Hindu side, you cannot but discuss these time periods. But not doing so, we have given total control, total control to the left side and the liberal side. So liberals will one day say, well, uh, Indian civilization is oppressive. Next day they will pick up Nath Sampradaya and start arguing that, look, 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 it was very good. And we will say, oh, Vedic period, Vedic period, Vedic period, we are stuck there. We have to come out of this thing if you want to proceed further. And the other point is that, you know, 
while we are not liberals, but we are not anti-freedom. We believe that freedom, liberty, and freedom of expressions are absolutely important. What we do say, however, is that absolute freedom, absolute liberty is nothing but anarchy. If everyone is allowed to do as they please, that is just chaos and anarchy. As the conservatives, we believe that periods of stability, like we have today, are exceptions. The history is anything but stability. The history is anything but peaceful. Look at the history, these periods, the period we are enjoying today with the presence of Indian state. Trust me, this is an exceptional period. Otherwise, your history has always been violent and chaotic with different invasions, with different kinds of forces, with different kinds of uh, no, uh, uh, invasions and other things going on. And that's true for the world over. The, the nature is not peaceful. The world is not peaceful. The stability is not natural. The stability is something which is created artificially. So while we do agree with freedom and liberty, we also believe that order and stability are equally important. And that is why we have a state. Now people say that Indian state is oppressive. Lots of people, the liberals say that Indian state is very oppressive. The left says Indian state should be overthrown completely because it is the evil construct. Well, any state is oppressive by its very presence. Why do the states come into existence? The states came into existence because of two things. Number one, to defend the people, their own people, what they classify their own people. And second thing is not very charitable to say, but to wage war on the others. This is the origin of the state if you go back into the history. You can give many other theories, the Marxist theory and this thing, but the, the purpose of the state is very simple in my opinion, if you go back as back as possible. Now state is very oppressive, very simply by its very existence, but we do tolerate state, we do need the state, why? Because we bargain some of our freedom and liberty in return of some kind of safety and stability. So, but what has happened is that in the right wing, we have started overemphasizing this part of stability and security. So anyone which who comes up on social media or anywhere who makes a point which is different or maybe idiotic even, maybe completely left wing point, we completely bash upon him being saying that you are anti-national, you are breaking India, you are destroying India, you don't know what you are talking about. And by doing so, we have started appearing anti-freedom. It's true, you know, lots of people say, well, um, I, I'm all right with what the right wing says, I support Narendra Modi, but you people are very anti-freedom. So we have to do some course correction there. We have to put these points in, a, in an intelligent manner. That why do we say that absolute freedom of uh, expression is not a good thing? I was in a discussion with some of my liberal friends at some center and they started saying, you know, look at what is happening to Padmavati. There is no freedom of expression in this country. We are going downhill. Everything is getting, you know, uh, from bad to worse in this country. I say, yeah, okay, I agree. There should be freedom of expression. And after five minutes, the same person was saying, look at Padmavati, how they have depicted the Alauddin Khilji in such a bad manner. This process of creating other is bad. We should stop it. Then I say, are you against freedom of expression? You can't argue the both. So liberals do not have a position. Their positions are very contradictory. They cannot argue after a point because they, if you believe in absolute freedom of expression, the end result is anarchy. While you have a far more better point, you say, yes, we believe, but we have to balance it 
we have to be more practical about it. We can't allow any everyone to do as they wish, but we have to do so while not appearing to be anti-freedom and anti-liberty. And this is happening in the right-wing discourse. And that is very problematic. And I think we are really creating a backlash among the youth. Imagine the youth which is living in metropolitan city, which has grown up watching AIB videos and people like Virdas, no matter what crap they talk, but they watch those videos. And you can't really get them on your side while appearing to be anti-freedom and dictatorial. And that is where we have to be more nuanced when we are arguing about these things. And other thing is again that right wing also has a problem that we are also against the state. There are two kinds of right wings which is against the state. One is the economic right wing, the libertarian one who we say is the state is bad and we should go with the anarcho-capitalism, we should have absolute free market, we should have no, no state interference in anything. And the second right wing is uh, ironically the Hindu right. We say, well, Indian state is so anti-Hindu, we should destroy it. There is no purpose of having this kind of state which imposes rights to education and all kinds of discriminatory law, which can't save the people in Kashmir, which can't save the people in Assam, which can't do anything about it. Well, I agree that there are inefficiency there is an inefficiency in the state and the state is not perfect what we have today. But the Hindu right should understand that after centuries you at least have a state. After how many centuries, and I am talking specifically to the Hindu right which is ultra radical Hindu right. After centuries you have a state for God's sake learn to appreciate it. If it is not working properly then whose mistake is that? You have a powerful state, you have a powerful army, you have a good enough economy. If you don't know what to do about it, then that's a very deep problem. That's not just about the Indian state or the person who has written the constitution or the person who is ruling the country. So this anti-state attitude has to go. You should learn as the right wing to deal with the state, to use the state for your purpose like the other side does. When Modi comes to power in 2014, he did nothing about changing the people who are ruling and running the institutions. When the Congress comes to power, within two months everything is done. So look at the UGC chairman, the same UGC chairman Ved Prakash continued for three long years and created trouble for the government again and again and again and again. And he retired in April and from April to December, after so many months you have a new chairman. So if you don't know how to appoint people, if you don't know how to run the state apparatus, if you have no interest in, it, in that, then please stop complaining about it. Same apparatus is there for you to use as well. So this anti-state attitude has to go. Now coming to the other side which is also anti-state is the economic right. I don't believe that libertarian economics is, you know, their, their viewpoint is against sustainable. I think that's and rent kind of a thing is absolute nonsense in my opinion. But right wing has started up, started appearing to be anti-poor. We have started appearing to be anti-poor, anti-farmer and even anti-youth. And this, this is, here we have to step back for a moment and start rethink our positions that you can't argue against the subsidized health and education to the people. You might disagree with that. Even I disagree with lots of things in that. But if you are a right-wing person, if you really want to stop, as you say, that we want to stop these missionary schools working in the countryside, for goodness sake, grip the people free education. If that all it needs to stop it. But I was talking to a person and he had to go to a, a hospital 
for something for some emergency purpose and he had to pay 700 rupees fees and 100 200 rupees again for the medicines it's maybe not a big deal for us we can pay it but for majority of the people in this country they just can't afford it and by and once the government starts a policy or starts a program where it subsidizes the healthcare the right wing is there on the social media newspapers and everywhere calling it freeloader economy and these people is a freeloaders for goodness sake stop doing it if you believe in a nation and nationalism please stop calling your own people freeloaders of course there are people who are corrupt who are burden on the system they take undue advantage but don't call people freeloaders when they are being given subsidized food when their, their education is being subsidized when their healthcare is being subsidized live in the reality as i say as a conservative look at the reality and these things are absolutely needed these things are absolutely absolutely needed not only for the poor poorest of the poor but even the urban new middle class they just can't afford to survive with such high cost so coming back to the uh, what we need to recalibrate is something very simple that we have to be very clear that we need a modern industrial nation we are not arguing here for a agrarian or village utopia number 2 we should stop appearing anti poor it's okay to be argue for free markets even i argue for free markets i'm not a leftist by any count but i do not, i will not argue against the welfare measures of the government i can argue that you should implement those welfare measures in an efficient manner designed them properly but we should stop appearing to be anti poor and anti people number 3 is that we should start engaging with the social fault lines in this country most importantly the caste if you do not do so other forces are going to fill in the space in fact they already have that space you have to fight an uphill battle to capture the center space other point is that we should stop our fixation with the vedic period for social sciences start dealing with the modern world if you are talking about sociology if you are talking about political science you are talking about economics please start engaging with the modern theories in these fields you can't when you are discussing sociology please don't go vedic period mein aisa hota tha no one is interested goodness for goodness sake deal with the critical theory deal with the modern theories in sociologies deal with the modern theory in political science you can't go back to charakya charakya again and again right political theory which is the political theory which has come out of india in the last 200 years i don't see any i remember i was strolling uh, one of my senior professor at du who happens to head swadeshi jagran not head swadeshi jagran much but is a part prominent member of it so he was talking something about railways and i said sir what is the solution to the railway problem then and he said yeah we should implement uh, this these things i said no what is the overall narrative you are talking about so he said something we should follow the principle of integral humanism and i said can you please explain it can you please explain the integral humanism apart from saying that we have to look the things in a holistic manner and all those things so he could not he could not so we have to accept that as a right wing person as a right wing group broadly speaking we really do not have any modern theory with us the westerners do it you have samuel huntington you have lots of people who work in political science and other fields from india name any political scientist any sociologist who is a conservative i was discussing with her the sociology department is full of the liberals not even liberals i think they are postmodernist and i don't know what they are actually so 
why you do why you do not have a conservative presence in those departments because you don't have the professors who can teach the sociology from a conservative perspective you don't have them because no one has paid attention to that social sciences cannot be a time pass that you did your engineering then you worked at at an mnc and then you come back when you have turned 40 or 50 that oh okay i'm going to contribute something to the social sciences i'm going to fight a battle with romla thapar on history you just can't do that right that's that's a time pass that's not serious work if to deconstruct these things you have to have presence in the social science from the beginning itself and you can only do so once you stop being fixated on some golden past and deal with the history and present as it is you know what stop when you say about the golden age of india well have you ever noticed that golden ages are always in the past but never in the present because present or the reality is so ugly to be called golden age but look at today and i'm not i will not be surprised that 200 years down the line some people will say this was one of the golden periods of india you have unprecedented economic growth you have the urbanization of india india is one of the top leading industrial power today the living conditions have improved dramatically life expectancy has improved dramatically there is a there is an outburst of cultural and creativity and all those things you may agree to that or not but there is when you compare that to the previous past centuries there is a rise in culture and other things your influence is spreading across the world the technology is growing very fast the medical the medicines have grown have improved you have automation coming in you have new technologies coming in what stops us from saying that this is the golden age but we don't say that because on the other side there is lots of poverty there is lots of violence there is lots of things which are not going well and that is why the golden ages always exist in past but never in the present but what you call golden age they also had the same kind of problem everything was not good even during those times so we should be we should stop being fixated and idealizing or creating a utopia about the golden age and deal with the things as they are or as they were and the last point is that there is a problem in the right wing is that you know how to say it this is very rude to say we don't read we don't read much we don't read much so i have seen people who have just read one or two book in their life and they become you know radical champions of the right wing and once you talk them after a point they are empty and most of these people have read something called breaking india and they are fanatic about this thing arguing everyone arguing you know with everyone putting down other people that you know you are a traitor you are not pure enough you are with the breaking india forces so we should get over it and start reading and i will say i will suggest that start reading the literature of your opponents start reading what the left writes start reading what the other people are writing you you think that by writing an article dishing romla thapar you have done a great service the history writing the history writing in on the other side has moved far ahead of the romla thapar so you are fighting old battles shadow battles romla thapar is not taken seriously even by her own school now so what are you gaining by deconstructing romla thapar you have to be there on the front line of the history writing but you can only do so once you read the other people i think that should be enough for today and thank you rahul thank you for calling me for giving this talk where i you know thanks thanks everyone for coming thank you.